Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. You, yes you, listener. Did you know that everybody at History Hack works for free? And as much fun as that is, it would be great if we could garner just a little bit of support for all of the time and effort that goes in to producing the show. Uh, I have a cat that needs food. Zach has Airfix models to buy. And Boney, well, Boney likes books. So if you can chuck us a couple of quid as a one-off by Kofi or subscribe to Patreon, we would much appreciate it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to History Hack. I've got Matt with me today. You're right, Boney. I'm very well, boss lady. How are you? I'm good, apart from the fact, well, we've got a guest today, but it's pretty average, a bit annoying. Uh, I know. Yeah. I, saw, I saw the name and I did try to get out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> but then you realised that you'd be leaving me alone with him. Yeah. You're a couple of bastards. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> Who is our guest, Matt? Well, you may have just twigged. We've got our very own Zach White with us today. And he is, if, if you don't already know, a PhD researcher at the University of Southampton. He's the history hack aide de camp of the boss lady herself. He's also the presenter of the most difficultly titled podcast in the <laughs> entire world, which is the Napoleonic Assistist um which is fantastic and there's an episode coming out now where he's got an amazing guest i thoroughly recommend you you tuning in for that one but the reason he's here today yeah me. (laughs) (laughs) can we just say though that he has now topped a hundred thousand downloads on a niche podcast about the napoleonicist it's brilliant downloads for my little history bro i know he's amazing and if he isn't busy enough he started a charity as well, which, you know, to us try to get try to get to being sensible is what we're going to talk about today. So it is the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity, which is fantastic. And so let's introduce him properly. Zach White, welcome to History Hack. How are you, sir? I'm I'm all right, mate. Can I say this is so weird being yeah, on creepy, the other it? side of the mic? I'm so used to being part of your furniture. Of yeah. this show <laughs> but, you know i had to go away and like prep what i was going to say for this one and everything it's it's a very odd experience I know. i'm not sure if i like it we're not going to be nice to you when are you ever nice to me exactly well that would really creep you out so um before before we do does this mean we've all been guests as well now yeah because you've done your bit alex yeah, yeah. There we we have. Well, Zach was a guest way back, wasn't he? Do you remember, mm. not remember? Were you there, Boney, on the first ever sharp one with Sean Bean, where he had like 25 pages of notes? It was hilarious. 
No, I, I came in later than that. But we, he literally we written down that, everything right? he knew about the Napoleonic Wars <laughs> and had it in front of him and was frantically looking for it as if it wasn't all in his brain already. But anyway... Um... <laughs> all on crap Wi-Fi, using a phone as a Wi-Fi hotspot. That was quite funny. Back in those days. Oh, and you wore a suit. I did. <laughs> oh, did. bless. We've kicked that out of you now. Right, okay, your charity. So... As a First World War historian, and, and Boney does the wrong war in that, we're used to big, shiny cemeteries full of glorious horticulture, matching headstones, um, all paid for by us because it's government money. It's the taxpayer's contribution. Uh, you don't get that. So explain to us what's the thinking behind this charity and what are you trying to do? Can I be really facetious and ask a question in response to a question? I mean, if you want me to hate you. <laughs> that's, what most, that's what most guests do. So. Yeah, go on. <laughs> what would you expect to have happened? to? Because we, you've talked about the obvious one there, which is like CWGC. Yeah. Huge amount of love for Commonwealth War Graves on, on many levels. I mean, in actual fact, my grandmother is buried in one for reasons that we won't go into, not that she was a, a service woman. Um, but what would you expect to happen to somebody pre, let's say, 1914 or pre-Boer War? Um, would they that's, even necessarily great, be worried about retrieving all the bodies? I mean, if we go all the way back to Owen Rees and his ancient war graves thing, the ancient Greeks just used to leave them on the battlefield. Um so I don't know, when does burials become a thing? And I, I mean, it's evidently not overarched by the government. So are they just dumped in pits on the battlefield? Or if they die of wounds, are they in family graves? Tell us, Zach. Yeah, so it's... Because it's you're a, supposed to be the expert. <laughs> <laughs> that whole attempt to be facetious and clever just spontaneously backfired quite yes. spectacularly, didn't it? <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> so, yeah effectively hole in the ground a very big hole in the ground is the basic premise but it's not always the case it often depends on you know the situation surrounding a particular battle i'll give you an example from the british kind of pantheon of successes so the battle of salamanca 1812 famously described as wellington defeating 40,000 men in 40 minutes bit of an exaggeration but effectively the next day marcus make that phrase up no, he didn't. Okay. Um, it effectively, the the British and the French armies move on the following day. They're not anywhere near the battlefield. And so those the remains of those who fell in that battle are just left there. And we know that because months later, Wellington's army ends up back in precisely the same place, camping on exactly the same field. And the accounts say that the soldiers were camping amongst the bones of the dead that had been left there. In some cases, such as Waterloo, you do get burial pits, mass graves, but we have a problem there. In the mid-19th century, there is a phenomenon of plundering graves to use the bones as bone fertilizer. They literally take the remains, grind them up, and ship them, uh, particularly to Britain, actually. We're particularly bad culprits of this. It doesn't just happen at Waterloo, it happens at Leipzig as well, the Battle of the Nations, it's sometimes known as in 1813. These sites are basically kind of mined for the the bone itself because they can use it to to fertilize crops so does does, that, is, does human bone make better fertilizer or is it just because it's there i think it's possibly just because it's there 
and you know you've got a very obvious site that you can use you're going to have a lot of dead people in one place it's a very kind of concentrated amount of bone that you you can use and the sort of the morality of it just gets completely forgotten about Uh, people just aren't thinking along those kinds of lines so that's a problem which therefore means that we don't have many instances there are some instances and there are some you know mass graves that have been protected but there aren't many instances where we come across these remains and where they do pitch up there isn't a consensus on what you do with them because there is no commonwealth war graves there was no kind of emphasis on mass commemoration during this period people at this point then so say you're a widow you're not expecting to have somewhere to go to be with your dead soldier husband that's not a tradition that you would expect and it's not you're not like a a memorial even maybe you could go to but it's not like you think that you have this a right to somewhere to go to it's always a question of money okay always about the money so alexander gordon has a whole kind of monumental pillar dedicated to him that was built by his family and if you read the inscription upon it on the waterloo battlefield it's just this outpouring of grief you can just hear the the sorrow of the family in the inscription that they've had carved into that for officers they were more likely to have some kind of a marker uh, perhaps even a, a headstone of some description that would have been put in at a later point but for your average member of the rank and file nobody cares nobody can afford to go and find the place people have probably forgotten anyway and so what you tend to find when it comes to the rank and file is that in the process of building work or municipal work um, these graves are just discovered and they're disturbed in in that process and that's where the problems start to kick in because there isn't a an established way of doing things are these remains curiosities are they specimens that should be used for research? Are they just things that you just kind of tuck away somewhere that's a little bit inconvenient? We've got examples of all of those mentalities being employed. So to stay with Waterloo as an example, if anybody's been to La Dernier Quartier, which is just south of Waterloo, it's the place where Napoleon stayed the night before Waterloo. In the grounds of that farmhouse, you can find a brick shack, really, for want of a better word, it's an ossuary and it contains the remains of just a whole assortment of bones that have been dug up on the Waterloo battlefield as a result of farming processes. Nobody's thought about what to do with them. They're just going to stuck them all in there. And there's this metal grill over the door that means you can peer through that door and see those remains inside. Another example of staying at Waterloo is a soldier from the King's German Legion who was discovered who we, there's a bit of a debate about whether or not we know his name. Um, I won't get into that debate, but the museum is effectively, he was discovered as they were digging out the foundations for the new museum, which is actually underground. They built it underground so they didn't disturb the profile of the battlefield as a whole. They found this guy and they studied him and then they decided to put him on display in that museum in a glass case. That Mm -hmm. was, they, they had to think about it they decided that that was the best way forward. They talk about him kind of being a physical representation of the much wider death and kind of a, his remains acting as a form of monument to the others. We could sit here and debate the, 
the rights and the wrongs of that. We could certainly very confidently say that if we were talking about 1914, that would not be deemed acceptable. Um, Equally, if you don't want to put them on display, what do you do with them? Because burial costs money and it costs quite a lot of money. And once you've found these remains, there's this big tension about the fact that you take them in order to preserve them, in order to keep them as something that can be studied further down the line, but you don't have the money for the research projects to carry out that research. You don't have the money to bury them. So you've got a really complex problem of what you do with them. And so quite often, these remains just end up being stored in cardboard boxes and get dusty on a museum storage shelf somewhere. So there's all kinds of kind of concerns that we as a charity have about that. And we are here to try and help that. This isn't about doing it in any way other than an utterly respectful one, because these are professionals who've come to decisions on how they are going to deal with these problems. And we respect that. At the same time, the dead deserve better than for us to have some unseemly arguments about them. And this isn't about judgments. And I mean that on, on many levels. So we have said as a charity that we will do a series of things. One is the burial of those remains if we can secure agreements for their release for burial. Now, as part of securing that agreement, we will then fund the research into them. The reason behind that is that if we can turn around to a museum and say, look, we will pay for you to learn everything you possibly want to know about these remains so that you can then hand them over to us knowing that there is nothing else at this point in time which you could possibly know, give us the remains. We will then pay for the burial. It won't cost you a penny. You will have had this research done for you. You can do whatever you want with that research. And that should therefore remove one of a series of barriers here. At the same time, uh, we obviously need to fundraise to that, but there is a much kind of broader educational element that needs to be done. You know, there is an opportunity to tell people about these people's lives and experiences. And it's also important to say that this isn't just about those that get dug up. There are plenty of graves around the UK, but also around the world. This is an international organisation that are in very poor states of repair. Now, those might be kind of memorials over the top of mass graves. They might be individual graves in cemeteries. And so as an organisation, we're trying to bury the unburied, maintain the very poorly um, maintained graves of those who made it back and survived and then died subsequently, fund the research, educate the public. Uh, it's, It's a huge thing, particularly considering the size of the remit. And I mentioned about how there are no judgments. Effectively, if we can prove that somebody served, they will be eligible. doesn't matter if they were army or navy, regardless of nation, regardless of whether in, in the militia, regardless of service record, no judgments are made. And in some cases, we will even be including women within that, particularly in kind of cases where we find um, two or, or multiple uh, remains, buried sets of remains buried alongside one another, and they're of different genders, because we have no way of knowing the circumstances of that burial. And it might be that the two um, the, the two died at much the same time and were deliberately buried together. We have no interest in separating two people who may have been sweethearts who were buried together. That's not what we're trying to do. So it's, it's a huge organisation aimed to do a hell of a lot, if we're being honest. So that's the what. <laughs> 
let's get to the why. What was what was the moment where you thought we need we need to do this? Because it's it's clearly been rattling around in your brain for a while. But what what was what was the moment to say right? We need we need this charity um, to do what you've just explained. But what was that moment where you went right? Let's do this. It's something that's been bubbling away for a, a while now. And it all came about because of the discovery of what I call the bones of Burgos. Basically, in, in 2008, um, during some municipal work in the city of Burgos around the castle that was besieged by the British army in 1812, they found what's often said as a set of six remains. I would actually suggest there are probably five remains, but we will get into the wires and wherefores of that in a bit. Um, and... A guy called Ed Cost, a professor of military history out of the United States Command and General Staff College, got wind of this. And he got in touch with some contacts at the Smithsonian and basically put together this agreement where they were going to take those remains, fly them to the Smithsonian's labs. The Smithsonian were going to pay for every single piece of research from bone analysis to looking at injuries that they'd sustained, um, buildup of lead deposits within the bone to see if they were kind of suffering from lead poisoning from the nature of their work. Uh, strontium and isotope analysis, oxygen isotope analysis, the whole works. And all that Ed's, Ed needed to do really was get together a team that could fundraise for that £4,000. And they could never, the, the £4,000 that they needed to fly those remains to Washington, D.C. They could never get there because it was 2010 and the recession happened. And nobody was shelling out. And so there was this great kind of travesty that you've got such an opportunity there and they could never realise it. Um, and time moved on. Ed kind of accepted that it wasn't ever going to happen. And in 2019, he and I got talking. We were working on something else entirely different. Um, and he just mentioned it in passing. And I approached it kind of like most people probably would. Well, isn't there an organisation that does this? Isn't there you know, some kind of funding out there to make something like this happen? And the answer was no, it's not. It's beyond the Commonwealth War Graves remit. Um, so I started putting together a team. You know, maybe if somebody tells you that something can't be done, I kind of tend to turn around and go, mm, OK, we'll see, um, which is just me being obnoxious, as you guys have experienced so often. We, we, so, we call it bloody minded within the team, actually. That's the diplomatic version, isn't it? Um, so I put together a, a team and it was an international team because, you know, you needed people on the ground in Spain. Obviously, I'm in the UK, Ed's in the US. And we were kind of poised and ready to go. By the time I'd got these people together, we were working out what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. It then just happened to be March 2020. And we all know what happened then. Um, and in the process, actually, that perhaps did us a favour because it made me pause and think again about this. And also news came in about a set of 80, sorry, 81 sets of remains that were discovered in the Netherlands from a field hospital from the 1790s. And it was starting to become apparent that this was a thing and it was a problem. And actually an organisation that came together and tried to deal with all of this and did a kind of multilateral approach was going to be able to do, it's going to be very busy, but could potentially do a hell of a lot of good at the same time. Um, before we go on to this, I want to know more about these bones of Burgos. What do we already know about them? Um, because you had a bee in your bonnet about this when I first knew you. Um, what do you want to do? Yeah, so do you remember a while back we interviewed Sonia Zakchevsky 
um, when we were looking at disability in the ancient yes. world. And, and you mentioned, you know, so have you spoken to, to Zach about the bones? And the answer was, yes, I had. Um, and I'm massively grateful to Sonia because she was one of the first people that made me realise that what we thought we knew probably wasn't actually the case. So to dig into these individuals, there are officially six of them. I think there are probably actually five of them. Uh, some of them are near, near full or full skeletons, um, others much less so. So the first one, and the ages I think are really telling here. So the first guy is aged between 15 and 23. I know we joke about how I look like I'm 12 years old, but these guys were honestly just so young. Um, we know his weight approximately about 10 stone six. So he's a sprightly kind of fellow. He's about my build. Um, and his the way in which he was found just says so much about kind of the horrors of war because he was found with his arm just kind of up above his head as if he'd been sort of protecting himself from a shell blast or we're not quite sure what. Um, and the, the gut instinct there was, was he caught in a blast and was just left where he fell? Because we do know that that happened at Burgos and that there were big issues in the city um, in the, the spring after the British had abandoned the siege in 1812 because the ground thawed out the bodies therefore were exposed to the elements and there were huge sanitation issues. And actually the French authorities didn't care because most of this was happening in the Jewish quarter. And they just said, mm, your problem, deal with it. Um, so that's individual one. Um, and to see a, a body in that state just kind of really emphasizes all of the horrors of war. Individual two um, was literally just a fragment of a tibia. He was found at the edge of the trench um, we can't really be sure about anything to do with him because we've got so little to work with. It's probably um, from a, a guy. An estimate is that he's about 11 stone, but that's literally all that we have on him. Individual three is one of the most complete that we have. Uh, he's aged 22 to 24 um, and he's missing the, the lower left arm and parts of his right hand, but that's not the cause of his death because in his skull there is an absolutely hideous puncture wound from a shell fragment so what has happened is a shell has come screaming overhead it's exploded shells during this period are not your world war one style things they're literally a spherical case of metal gunpowder inside it fuse the fuse goes off and it just splits apart into a handful of fragments and one of those has come down and hits him straight on the top of the head uh, the only thing that you can take away from that is at least his death would have been pretty much instantaneous. There wouldn't have been much suffering there. Um, and this was one of the first guys where we started to have rumblings that what we thought we knew wasn't right. So he, this guy was found with buttons of the British 83rd Regiment and the French 65th. And so the archaeological reports were saying, okay, maybe this is a British soldier from the 83rd um, on the basis of what they found in, uh, on his body. However, if you've studied military history, you'll know that there is a tendency for soldiers to exchange buttons. That's a thing that they do. And then I went digging in the archives and I looked at the death records because we have registers for these regiments and we can look at where they were deployed. And what it became very clear um, is that this regiment, the 83rd, is about 30 miles away at the time that this guy is meant to have died. It's, it's, they haven't got any troops in the vicinity and they don't have any register they don't have any record of anybody dying at this siege. So he's probably not the 83rd. Does that mean he's French? 
mm, who knows? We honestly won't know that until we get him in a lab and we start analysing the, the makeup of his um, isotope deposits. So we've got all kinds of questions about whether or not we're dealing with a French guy here or a Brit. We don't care what nationality he is. We just would like to know. Um, it's certainly not the case that you know we, we only care about the British here. So that's number three. Number four, this is the guy that I tend to think of as the mysterious child. And I do mean he's a child. So this guy is between 16 and 18 years old at the point of death. Um, and that's quite a kind of a thing to get your head around anyway. By the age of perhaps 16, he's timed up. He's gone out to Spain. Somebody's put a musket in his hand and he's died already. Um, we can be fairly confident that he's from the 58th Regiment. The reason being that there are about 20 buttons from that regiment on his body and all in roughly the kinds of places where you'd expect to find them on a uniform. So he was wearing a 58th uniform. Um, we don't know the cause of death. There is a possibility that the fact that his remains are missing uh, a skull and neck vertebrae and a left arm may be a cause of death. They may not. We just don't know. The reason why he's mysterious, though, is that we thought he was buried where he fell. The reason being that there was a shovel that was found, an old trenching tool was found underneath his body. And so the thinking was he must have been in the process of doing some digging, been killed and then just left where he fell and kind of fallen on top of the shovel because this is a, a tool that would have been picked up and reused by other soldiers. But then this is where Sonia came in because she took one look at the photograph of him being dug up and said, but his legs are on top of one another. And I kind of went, yeah, okay. What does that mean? And what she's saying is that rather than having both legs laid out in parallel, what you quite often see in burials is that if somebody has crossed one leg over the other, it's because they haven't bothered to dig out the space properly. And so rather than dig out that extra space for the other foot, they just put one on top of the other, he fits in the hole, job done, and then they fill in the earth. So we now don't actually know, was he buried where he fell or was he left um, and you know nature took its course? So there's lots of questions about that. Individual five is, he's in a bad way. So he ha we have none of his arms. Um, well, I say we have none of his arms. I'll come back to that in a second. We have no left leg and we only have the femur of the right leg. Because there's a good proportion of him that's missing, we think he's anywhere between 21 and 46. But we do know his cause of death because inside his cranium, they found a musket ball from a French caliber musket. And you can actually see the entry wound on, on his head. The reason that I say we may or may not have his, his, one of his arms is because individual number six, inverted commas, is effectively a solitary right arm. It's the, the shoulder blade, um, the, all of the, the arms and the bone, effectively. But the reason this is so confusing is that it was found next to number five, but it was found in the grave the wrong way round. So the shoulder blade was down by the hip and the finger bones were up by the shoulder. And again, it's one of those things we just won't know until we get these guys in our lab and we start kind of working out what what are we going to do with them? Um, well, we have a, a sense of what we aim to do. We would like to study them, work out all of these unanswered questions, work out where they came from, what their service records were, the impact that the war was having on their bodies uh, in terms of nutritional deficiencies, um, in terms of deformities on their body from the weight of the packs that they're wearing, 
and the biting of cartridges. And then having learned all of this stuff, we then want to actually do the, the basic, the human thing, and just give them a hole in the ground and something over that hole in the ground to say, this marks the place of somebody who served and died for their country. There's a couple of ethical questions here. You talk about giving them a new hole in the ground, considering they've been pulled out of a hole in the ground. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. The ground already. So what would you say to those about who would say that storing these remains has an educational benefit or that the, the full military honours and the new headstone is a bit anachronistic these days, considering the majority, I would say, of these regiments no longer exist or have been amalgamated so many times, their units have, have been lost to time as well. Yeah, I agree with all of that because there are no perfect solutions to this. You know, the, these are from a different period. Mass graves were a norm. We've talked already about the bone fertiliser thing. People didn't have this philosophy that we have today about the war dead and the way in which they would be treated. What's quite striking, though, is that when you talk to veterans, they feel this very fiercely and they, they know that times were different and that there were different standards back then but they still feel an affinity and they kind of think upon these soldiers as they're kind of inverted commas regimental ancestors. So there is certainly uh, a tension here between what would have been done and what we know is, or what we think of as right now. And, and this is something that I would particularly kind of dwell on that there's plenty from 200 years ago that we now don't agree with and which we're trying to do something about and trying to right certain wrongs. And I wouldn't, I would suggest that you know this whole situation regarding burial isn't fundamentally that different. It's another thing that we look upon now and go, that's just not right. And so where we have an opportunity to put something right, I think the, that opportunity should be taken. There's also a question about what if these men hadn't died in war? Because they'd still have been buried. Some of them, sure, would have ended up in paupers' graves. But plenty would have had a headstone, and we have plenty of members of the rank and file who survived, who died of natural causes much later, who then did receive proper Christian burials, as it was back then, um, with headstones over their graves. If you think about things like Chelsea pensions, those already existed in this period. You have uh, a sense of... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. 
no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Society beginning to recognize the sacrifices made by men during this conflict. Take Waterloo. Waterloo is the first battle in, for the British Army where every single soldier receives a medal noting their service. Much later, you then get that kind of retrospectively applied to the Peninsula War. So you have a situation where there is recognition of service. Yes, it's applied after the fact, but there is still a, a kind of a change in almost a cultural shift in how you approach honouring service and sacrifice. And I would go back to this idea that there is no cons consensus because there's a big, big question here. Why do we do it for generals? Because we absolutely do. And I'm not just talking about your Wellingtons and Napoleons. I'm talking about all generals. So very recently, some folks went looking for the remains of Etienne Goudin, who died in, the, uh, in Napoleon's pretty disastrous Russian campaign of 1812. They found him underneath the dancing floor of a nightclub and they exhumed his remains. They could tell it was him very quickly from the, obviously the test to confirm this, but um, Goudin very famously died shortly after an amputation. He was wounded by a, a cannonball. Um, it was very close to Napoleon as well. Napoleon was really quite upset about the whole thing. Um, and they exhumed him. They studied his remains and then they flew him back to Paris. And last month they buried him in the Hotel d'Anvalide next to Napoleon, not directly next to, but in the same building and sort of adjacent to Napoleon. Now, if we can do that for a general, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, every single member of the rank and file needs to be buried alongside Wellington, needs to be buried alongside Napoleon. But the fact remains, if we can do that for Etienne Goudin, why can we not just turn around and say, you know what, these people served, they died. And on a fundamental level, the sacrifice is the same. A life lost is still a tragedy regardless of who has given that life, why can't we just put them in the ground and honour them and mark that place out? It isn't just about putting people in the ground, is it, this charity? What else are you doing? Like I say, there's plenty who made it back um, and we've got, therefore, loads of graves of veterans that have had, you know, 150, almost 200 years worth of neglect wrought upon them. Um, Alex, I know you've been to Southampton Old Common Cemetery in the past looking um, at graves related to the Titanic, and you know the I situation. I have fallen in a grave. Exactly. Some of them are in such a bad state of repair. I fell in a grave. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so I also went to Southampton Old Common Cemetery recently on a bit of a fact-finding mission because we've got 11... Um, I think they're all officers' graves, actually, in, in that one. But we've got 11 graves there. And even for the officers' graves, the state is pretty appalling. So there's one guy I had to hack my way through seven feet worth of bramble bushes to get to him. Uh, and I could work out where he was because I had the plot numbers and I could work out things in relation to it. Once I got there, actually, his grave's in a pretty decent condition. But we've got a big problem in terms of access because a lot of these graves have been allowed to turn over to nature. And, you know, there's a whole ethical thing there. But even within cemeteries such as that, there are graves that are maintained by CWGC. So there is this disconnect. 
in terms of we honour one conflict, but not another. And this is where the charity kind of tries to redress the balance. We've got other graves just within that cemetery um, to generals even that have just completely fallen apart. Um, So I've got a Lieutenant General of the Royal Artillery, John Lacey, whose grave basically has a massive tree growing right at the edge of it. And it's completely destabilised. This what was once a very nice kind of monument style construction. It's just fallen apart. The grave is cracked. Um, It's a complete mess. We've got others where we've got bushes literally growing through the the stonework and kind of pulling the grave apart from the inside. So there's there's lots to be done from a grave maintenance perspective. Not every story is a horror story. That's important to say. You know, there are plenty that are in decent condition that could just do with a bit of a clean. And so as a charity, we are trying to gather as much information as we can to assess those graves. And then we can use that to start to prioritise, start to fund the cleaning, start to fund the replacements and move on from there. I've talked already about education. This isn't just about, hey, look at us, we're going into these graves and we're going to clean them and aren't we heroes? This isn't about that. This is about an educational process. So we want to use this as a way of telling people about these men's experiences, their lives, and get other people involved in that process. But there's also a research element tied in within that because, you know, me, uh, we're, we're all kind of much of the same here. We all like those little people stories, the people who just kind of get neglected in this process. And by starting to research these remains, we can start to shed a little bit of a light on what they experienced and bring their suffering, an awareness of their suffering into the mainstream so that we can actually appreciate what it was like for these men fighting in these wars and having such essentially a a pivotal role in the history of Europe and indeed the world. Are there any other organizations out there doing this or are you, or are you special? I I mean, I I do like to say that I'm special, but that's probably just me uh, being me. No, look, facetiousness aside, there are other organizations um, out there that try to do a little bit of the grave maintenance side of things there are and so so the way that this tends to work is either you've got lone wolves who i've got a lot of love for who are just spending their time with a gofundme page getting people to to chip in and then they spend their weekends going around these sites and trying to clean things up and doing a really impressive job in the process because actually it's not simple when it comes to cleaning a grave you can't just turn up with a bucket of water and a sponge, you know, you, you need proper equipment and proper chemicals, otherwise you're going to damage the stone. You also have bigger organisations that tend to cover very big periods, kind of taking it all the way back to the, the 18th century and all the way into the end of the 19th century. We have a massively different approach. For one thing, we're the only organisation that I can find out there that is dedicated to putting people back in the ground. It's a huge headache, but we don't care about the size of the headache. We just want to do it because we feel it's the right thing. There's also nothing out there that's funding research to the same extent. If you were to try and do this through any other means, you'd have to pull together lots of individual funding grants and it would be incredibly difficult. The other kind of point that um, we have is that we are very period specific. So we have made a very conscious decision to call ourselves the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves Charity, because we cover 
the period from the American Revolution slash War of Independence to the end of the Napoleonic Wars. So 1775 to 1815. If we can prove somebody served in that point, they are eligible. No questions asked, provided we've got the proof. And the proof is an, an obviously important point. And the reason that we did that is that I made sure that we had the expertise in-house to do this in the right way. So when I built this team, I brought in, yes, people like Ed, who has a, a whole kind of experience of years of teaching and researching the Napoleonic Wars and the British soldiers' experience in those wars. I've got experts from the Netherlands, uh, Professor Beatrice de Graaf, she's an expert on international relations during the Napoleonic era. I've got osteoarchaeologists who I've brought in, uh, Katie White, who's out in Germany. Um, so I've kind of built this multinational team that is built around expertise in this period. I have colleagues out in Spain who are assisting. Um, so you can see that the, the emphasis has been on let's take a period and let's deal with that period properly, because actually there is so much out there to be done that if we stretch ourselves even further, it would be a, a literally impossible task. Can I chuck something in? Mm, go for it. Go to West Brompton Cemetery and there is the grave of a white Russian. He, I would argue, is quite clearly an imperial Russian representative. He has a Soviet headstone because of when the headstone was put there. What are you going to do about changing stuff? So let's say that Germany didn't exist until 1870. How will you deal with the, the problem I think you're going to have of what their allegiance was and how it's not applicable anymore without dragging them and claiming like, well, you, you would be a German now, so I am going to put a German flag over your grave. How are you going to deal with, the, with that? It is, do you have to let it go to a certain extent who they fought for? Absolutely. This is why we've said regardless of nationality. So at no yeah. point are we going to make any judgment on, look, everybody knows my stance on Napoleon. They, if they've heard me bash him often enough, at no point am I going to turn around and say, this soldier served in the Grande Armée, therefore we're not interested. That is not what this charity seeks to do. We've built an international team as part of that emphasis to make sure that regardless of which side of the coalition you were on, or you know, if you were actually fighting the British in India, uh, admittedly that's less likely because of the way in which burials worked out in India um, and a, a much kind of heavier emphasis on cremation, but it doesn't matter what the nationality is. It doesn't matter what the cause is. If, you if we can prove they served, we will bury them. It is genuinely that simple. No questions asked. We're not even digging into service records, partly because it's very difficult to pinpoint accurately who these people are to the point of knowing their exact names. Um, partly because let's say, for example, um, a deserter was found and somehow we managed to prove that this guy had been shot at firing squad for desertion from the army. Now you could turn around and say, well, this guy's a deserter. Does he therefore deserve a grade? He still gave his life. And the bottom line is the reason he, he was shot was because that was the sentence for his crime. He has served his sentence. And mm. therefore, you don't sit there and make an additional judgment. You no, just go, I mean, the, the shot dawns from the First World War, even if they are murderers who have not been pardoned, have the same headstone as anyone else. So Precisely. And so our approach will be, in each case, we're going to have to be careful in terms of obvious kind of concerns around national sentiments. We, we know that. We, we will tackle that head on. But one of the things that I've always liked about 
the way CWGC does it is the uniformity. And death is the great leveler, right? And the great unifier. Um, and we have mass graves actually where we have British and French buried alongside each other. And so we have no issue with uniform markers that just state, you know, here is somebody who served and they died on this date. And if we can pinpoint the nationality, that's fantastic. And so we will do that. But we won't be putting names on headstones because there would be nothing worse than for us to turn around and put the wrong name on somebody's gravestone and misremember somebody. And so from a basic position of respect, we will mark the place, but not be putting input to commas names to faces. Have you got a design yet? We're working on that. So we are very, very early stage um, in this. We registered, <laughs> registering the charity was a very long process because everybody and their dog set up a charity after uh, the, the last COVID lockdown. So we finally got a charity number. Uh, the accounts are getting set up as we speak. Um, I'm literally expecting that confirmed every day. And by the time this goes out, we will be properly set up. But yes, we will. Good have... luck there. When I set up the Great War Group bank account, I did it with my own bank, and I still had to go and sit in the bank and refuse to leave until they signed the effing form <laughs> because they're just like, if you're no one's interested right now, they're not interested. They're so busy trying to cope with all of the people who are financially destroyed by covid they don't want any new customers they just want you to go away it's it's a fun experience that's for sure but what we are what we are thinking is that in many cases we will have to have monuments commissioned for specific circumstances so for the five at burgos we may have to have a specific monument designed that does it's the best job it can of protecting those remains should the museum want to access them at a later point in time um, with the 81, that's a huge monument. Are we going to pay for individual uh, graves or are we just going to have a much bigger edifice over the site that we rebury them if we can get the relevant permissions? And there's also huge concerns over money, which I suspect we'll talk about in a second. Let's talk about cash, because unfortunately, all of the historians in this room do not belong to that revered group of historians who are related to the aristocracy and really minted, uh, unfortunately. We're all broke. So how are you going to pay for this and what kind of money are you looking at? Oh, the, the, the costs just give me a massive headache every time I look at them. Genuinely, I, I look at how much money we're talking about and just go, how the hell do we fund this? So to give your listeners a bit of a sense of what we're talking about, basic analysis. How, of our story. listeners... Zach. Your listeners too. Your, 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 your listeners too. <laughs> oh, look at you being so sweet and inclusive. It <laughs> was me thinking you were going to be gits the whole way through this recording. Um, There's still time. <laughs> um, so basic analysis of a skeleton, i.e. lay it out in a laboratory and do you know a basic run through of the state of it, uh, likely causes of death, examination. That costs you... £500 by the time the report's been written and you paid for lab equipment and so on. And that's not a lot in the grander scheme of things. However, that's only the very basic analysis of the physical remains. That doesn't include... He had bad dental hygiene and a hole in his head. The end. <laughs> right? Basically, yeah. Maybe a couple of extra things thrown in as a bonus. You know, he, he's missing an arm or something. Um, if you want to do forensic style um, analysis and particularly kind of molecular analysis. So we're talking about things like strontium isotope analysis, 
That's the stuff that builds up in your teeth when you're a kid based on the water that you drink. And you can then trace where somebody grew up based upon the, the specific isotope of strontium that is embedded within uh, the, I believe it's the dentine. Oxygen, and ice, oxygen isotope analysis, similar kind of concept, except that it's in the bone. And if you put those together, you can start to build, you can use maps of where these isotopes are based and start to work out where these people originate from. If you want to do that, the sky's the limit. I mean, if you want to do DNA analysis, you know, you just keep racking on the pounds. Then we get to burial. So a coffin, and yes, I had to go and Google this, is 600 quid. A headstone is 1,500 quid. All in, we estimate that burying one person by the time you bought a plot, uh, you paid for the service and so on, is about £4,000 per individual. So to do the analysis and the burial for Burgos might cost us £30,000 at a conservative estimate. We might be able to achieve economies of scale, in which case, hey, great, 30000 might be achievable. So let me then turn that to the 81 that I mentioned, found in the Netherlands from the 1790s, buried in that field hospital, or the grave adjacent to that field hospital. To bury them alone, that's £324,000. If you just wanted to do the basic analysis, i.e. lay them out, see what you've got, likely cause of death, that's £40,000. Well, it's actually 40500 but what's 500 between friends? And this is the point at which you start to realise why nobody's done anything with these remains, because how do you find that money to go and do that research? It's just a huge, it's an astronomical cost. And, you know, times are hard for everybody, including museums right now. Footfall is down. So they haven't got the spare cash to just go, yeah, let's go and do this really detailed analysis of all of these remains and let's go and then pay for their burial. They haven't got in excess of a quarter of a million to go do this kind of research. And I I feel that that's why as an organization, we want to come in and say, look, we understand that problem. How about it? You know, how about we pay for it and, and we work it out for you and we deal with the logistics and then you can have access to this research and we will help you with that whole process of putting together museum exhibits and so on. Because the other point here is about, do you display these remains? Which is a whole big ethical question in its own right. And we would suggest that once you've learned everything from them, from an educational perspective, you can get the same benefit from a resin cast that could be made to look exactly like the real thing and display that instead of displaying the actual remains. That's our stance as a charity. And we understand that people may disagree but in terms of remembering that these artifacts are human, that is what we feel is the most appropriate way forward. Put a replica on display and let's actually do the, the honourable thing and give them the proper burial. I just want to ask about the, the, the resin element, because I think of things of similar periods, for example, at the Vasa Museum, when you're, you're underneath her keel, they have the... Um, sort of claymation reconstructions ne next to the remains. Um, granted, this is a little bit closer to us. It seems to be an odd cutoff for when it's it's cool to do that or not. Would, you sort of said that's an ethical issue. Would that be something, if there was funding from a museum to do that, that you'd want to be involved in? This is a hypothetical. Sure, yeah, it is a hypothetical. We are very conscious that, this is going to be a case by case basis, right? And we will always be guided by 
the museum. You know, this isn't a case of us kind of kicking down the door and going, we think it's scandalous that you're doing this. Because like I said at the, the start, you know, the, these are professionals, first of all, and you have to have that professional respect. And at the same time, the dead deserve better than for us to have some kind of unpleasant argument and kick up a stink. This should be done in the right kinds of ways. So if a museum does turn around and say, sorry, but no, we're not interested, we have to respect that and we're not courting controversy. At the same time, our fundamental aim is we want to get people back in the ground because that's where we feel they should be. Um, so we're always happy to, to work with and crucially to pay for some of this stuff to happen. So if people want to kind of sit down with us and look at you know ideas like crystal skulls or claymation options, whatever the, the solution might be, what the solution isn't the problem for us. It's just the can we reach an agreement that you decide on what you want to happen in exchange for us getting these remains. And we will work to make that happen. We haven't got a bottomless pit. We haven't got any kind of pit at the moment. We're right at the start of our journey. But if people can tell us what they want, then we can work out what the price is and then we'll start the fundraising and we will move heaven and earth to try and make that happen. So here we go. How can people get involved? How can they find out more? Where can they go? Give us the sales pitch. You were giving yeah, us the, the sales pitch. Give us the, the, the directions to the rest of it. The begging. The begging starts here. Um, so we are a registered charity. It, it, boy, did it take a while to get our registered charity number, but we're there. Hurrah. Um, so if people want to go and check us out and, and see who we are and, and what we're aiming to do and read the Constitution and see if we're the sort of organisation that they feel they want to be associated with, the charity number is 1196849. And you can type that into the gov.uk uh, charity commission register and find out all about us. We are on Twitter and Facebook. Of course, we are at NRWG charity. If you want to get in touch with us, obviously we have an email address, nrwgcharity at gmail.com. On a more practical level, we're going to be running a volunteer program very soon. Like I said, we've got tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of graves around the world that we need to assess. And we need that information. And there's lots of stuff going on behind the scenes with me sitting down with people and working out, you know, individual sites and trying to work out the logistics of how we get people out there to start to see what kind of state these things that these, these graves are in. But the public can help us with that. And so the idea of this volunteer program is that it helps people to get out there, get engaged with their local history and their local Napoleonic history. And we will sit you down with a very, very short Zoom call, give you a little bit of advice on the do's and don'ts in this situation. Because like I said, it's not as simple as just turning up with a pair of secateurs. But it's not complicated either. We can give you the information about people that are buried local to you. And then all we would ask in return is, you know, take a few pictures, maybe even a little quick video on your, your mobile phone. Send that to us. We can use that as part of our assessment process, work out what we need to deal with. We can contact the relevant authorities that oversee that graveyard and we can get the ball rolling. Most practical thing of all, why not become a member? It's 25 quid a year. Yes, okay, that's you know not a small amount of money. I do understand that. It's actually less than some military history organizations that just focus on education. So you're getting the educational benefit on top of the wider aims of the charity. So actually getting a fairly good deal, we feel. I know some people dispute that and go, well, why isn't it one pound a month? But 
bear in mind what I said, £324,000 to bury those 81 guys. If I charged people a pound a, month, a pound a year, we'd be forever trying to get the money together. You can also donate as a one-off. We've already had people kind of coming to us and, and saying, look, how about I kind of chip in 500? We, we have a pool of money that is very gradually building. We're going to launch a big kind of initial launch fundraising campaign very soon at the 5,000, where we'll have a couple of projects kind of embedded in that. And it also helps to cover our startup costs because we've got people who are incredibly enthusiastic in terms of time, but you heard it from Alex. We are not rich individuals within this room. And that applies to people more broadly involved in this charity. So we do need help and we do need people's support. And, you know, however big or however small that donation is, it does make a huge difference. And it means that this can be done. We will have a website up by the time that this goes out. We are having that built at the moment. Big thanks to Megan Kelleher, who's our website coordinator and all round genius making that happen. And it will be through that website that people will be able to donate. The links will be on our um, social media feeds. So if you look for us on Twitter and Facebook at NRWG Charity, you'll be able to go straight through where you can donate and become a member. But also we're going to be doing events. You know, this isn't just kind of something that sort of vaguely exists in the ether. We're doing online talks that will be free to members. There'll be one of those a month. Non-members have to pay a fiver a go. Very sorry, but, you know, we have to protect the perks for our, our members, which therefore means if you come to five talks, you break even on your membership fee. If you come to six talks over the course of a year, then, hey, you're basically benefiting. And we are running a big international conference, the National Army Museum, in September of this year, 2022. It's going to be called War and Peace in the Age of Napoleon II. It's the successor to a conference that I ran at King's in 2019. Big event. It will be online and in person. We've got details going out via our social media channels. But the most important thing I would like people to do is just tell other people about this organisation. Just get people talking and see if we can reach some kind of consensus on what we should do about these remains and how we honour the war dead from this period. On that note, what a good project. I'm so proud of you, little history bro. (laughs) Cheers, boss. Yeah, excellent. Get on it, people. Um, It is a worthy cause, and I I don't envy you some of the... I I thought I was crazy with the Great War Group. You're insane. Insane in a good way, dear listeners. And And this is a fantastic charity. Let, let our, our ragging of the trustee, the chair, even not, not put you off. Yeah. One, one of us three needs to marry a billionaire or something. We really well, do. I'm already married, so it's not me. And, <laughs> and I'm in a very that. happy relationship, so, you know, it ain't going to be me either. Oh, off you go, okay. boss lady. It's kind of sugardaddy.com or something. Oh, we just got so many ideas between us, haven't we? Boney wants to build his plane that he found in a garage. Great War Group wants its own museum, although in their WhatsApp group today, what they actually want is to fund a relevant World War One Pacific Island, probably where the Emden was hit, uh, and go and live there because the weather's horrible. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not funding that. Um, and you've got lots of people to bury and put in real graves. So, guys, please do get involved uh, with the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves Charity. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 